the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Well, we had anticipated a conversation with Michael Sherrard, who's the author of Why You Matter, but... That ain't going to happen. So (laughs) we're going to share a conversation I had with Pastor Rich Jones, again, on the subject of uh, church attendance. That'll be in the uh, second half of the first hour of today's program. Trying to keep my composure. Okay, I'm good. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, Chuck Schumer announced a $3.5 trillion spending plan to pair with the infrastructure package. So that's not the only deal. This is the $3.5 trillion uh, part of uh, the two um, packages. In a late-night announcement uh, on Tuesday, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the Budget Committee had reached an agreement to allot $3.5 trillion for a spending package that would complete the president's infrastructure plan. Well, the Budget Committee has come to an agreement, he told reporters following the closed-door meeting with Democratic lawmakers you add that um, to the $600 billion in the bipartisan plan and you get to $4.1 trillion, which is very, very close to what President Biden has asked us for, Schumer said. Every major program that President Biden has asked us for is funded in a robust way. Of course, it will bankrupt future generations and raise your taxes rather dramatically, but that's robust. Well, the plan will fund a budget reconciliation package so that Democratic lawmakers can sidestep the need for GOP support and shield the funds from a filibuster. The budget will cover costs to expand Medicare, address climate change, child care and education, all big ticket items deemed human infrastructure. So infrastructure means something else altogether. You put the word human in front of it. and It's really not infrastructure at all. But you get the idea that Republicans said they would fervently reject So let the games begin, not the Olympic Games in Japan, but the games in Washington. In other news, uh, Senator Capito slammed the Democrats human infrastructure bill, warning of troubled waters ahead. It will be an uphill climb. Lawmakers will determine the fate of the infrastructure and anti-poverty plans. And Chuck Schumer says the Senate may work into August to pass the infrastructure plan and reconciliation bill, which is also an infrastructure plan. Former President Trump calls for a GOP pullout from the president's uh, $1.2 trillion mega spending talks, saying you're just being played. The Texas Senate passed the Republican-backed voting Reform bill. The Texas state senators passed a GOP led voting reform bill Tuesday following Democrats' departure, which is being characterized by the mainstream media as intensely brave. Their departure on private jets to convenient hotels in Washington, D.C., where they can rest in the bosom of uh, Joe Biden and hopefully ride out the remainder of the Texas legislature so they don't have to do their jobs. Um, Anyway, their departure from the state in a move to stall passing the House's version of the bill. 
Well, in a party line vote, 18 to 4, Senate Republicans passed a bill that would more heavily regulate voting laws, an effort that Democrats have dubbed as Jim Crow 2.0. Now, just as a side comment, anybody who characterizes this voting bill as Jim Crow of any sort, starting with the president on down, doesn't understand what Jim Crow was. They don't know the history of it. So it's hyperbole at its worst or maybe its finest. Anyway, eight state Senate Democrats joined House members in fleeing the state for Washington, D.C., first reported the uh, Texas Tribune. A ninth senator is expected to meet the group of uh, lawmakers in the nation's capital, but a quorum in the Senate was maintained with 22 of the 31 members present, allowing for the passage of that bill. Rather than continuing to uh, debate Republicans, refuse to legislate in good faith, Texas Senate Democrats decided to take matters into their own hands in order to secure the voting rights of Texans, especially voters of color. And it's just so gratifying to know that these people are looking out for us because clearly we can't seem to manage um, on our own seniors and those with disabilities and work with our partners at the federal level to pass voting rights legislation that would rein in discriminatory voter suppression laws and unfair redistricting practices. Now, the Democratic Senate said in a joint statement to the Texan publication. But while Democrats have claimed the laws proposed by GOP senators are suppressive attempts to block voter turnout, Republicans maintain the laws would secure the elective process. So the back and forth will continue. Well, in other news, Democrats uh, who fled Texas slammed the GOP-backed elections bill, saying they are making big sacrifices with the walkout. Now, I've been contemplating making some big sacrifices of my own. I haven't decided what the destination will be. I'm thinking maybe Florida, the California coast, a nice luxury hotel where, you know, the courage that I can muster will be demonstrated um, by my willingness to leave my home for the luxury of, uh, you know, other surroundings based on principle. Somehow, I don't think it'll be characterized in quite the same way, but oh well, I'm not a politician. Meanwhile, Greg Gutfeld ripped Biden as a pathological liar, injecting race into his election law speech during the Texas standoff. The five host Greg Gutfeld, seen on Fox News, blasted the president as a pathological, shameless liar after the commander in chief injected race into the Philadelphia speech about election laws as Texas state Democratic lawmakers flew to Washington, D.C. to prevent that state's legislature from having a quorum to approve new reforms. They didn't want to debate the issue. They knew they would lose by sheer numbers of other fellow elected Texans to the legislature. While speaking in Old City, Biden claimed uh, proponents of election security measures are engaging in a 21st century Jim Crow assault. Now, that language is calculated to be effective at moving minority communities um, in ways that virtually nothing else can. In unrelenting, it's unrelenting, and we are going to challenge it vigorously, the president went on to say. Are you on the side of truth or lies? Stand up for God's sake, he went on to say, and help prevent this concerted effort to undermine our election. Now, later in the program, I'm going to talk about exactly what's in this legislation, and you can decide for yourself if uh, this is... um, You know, the worst thing since the Civil War, that this is the significant, the most significant test to our democracy since the Civil War. Biden went on to claim Republican-led election security reforms in states like Texas and Georgia and Pennsylvania are akin to, and I'm quoting, facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. Now, if this wasn't so serious, I would be laughing, but it's no laughing matter. 
Well, on the five, Gutfeld said he was up, uh, upset by the president's race infused rhetoric. Again, referring to him as pathological and shameless, he ran on being a unifier and all he does is bank on racial discontent. He's comparing this bill to the KKK and Jim Crow. All he does is foment racial conflict, additionally referencing the Texas election integrity bill that spurred the Democrats to leave the state. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, Pastor Rich Jones. Well, here's what's actually in the Texas election bills that Democrats keep comparing to Jim Crow. And you can decide for yourself if that's an appropriate uh, comparison. Well, the Texas House Democrats have fled the state to uh, preclude a quorum for a special session dedicated to passing an election security bill um, uh, from being brought in by um, uh, by the Republicans. Uh, They may be brought in by law enforcement under warrant of arrest if necessary, following a 76 to 4 vote approving the action on Tuesday. But that aside, passage of the legislation dubbed House Bill 3 cannot occur without a two thirds quorum of 150 members. Only 80 of the 150 members were present on Tuesday. In addition, Texas Senate Republicans are trying to pass their own version of the bill known as Senate Bill 1. Senate members are expected to debate their version of the voting bill as planned on Tuesday with a quorum of 22 members present. Well, Democrats have referred to their um, uh, to the pair of bills as Jim Crow 2.0, accusing Republicans of trying to suppress the votes of minorities. But again, here's a look at what's actually inside the bill. What is in Senate Bill 1? And you can decide for yourself if this is Jim Crow 2.0. Well, under Senate Bill 1's provisions, a ban would be implemented on drive-through voting or casting a ballot from inside a vehicle unless participating in curbside voting due to a disability. A ban would also be placed on overnight voting, requiring polls to be open a minimum of nine hours uh, from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. Election officials would also be required to install a video surveillance system that records vote counting activities with a live stream made available to the public and counties with 100,000 residents or more. Now, those in large counties would also be required to install tracking software to monitor all input and activity on electronic devices used to count votes. Beginning the 1st of January 2024, equipment that does not disable or remove any wireless connectivity capability will be prohibited from use in tabulating votes. Senate Bill 1 um, would also allow partisan poll watchers to observe election activities inside polling places and vote counting centers, as well as during curbside voting uh, that takes place inside a vehicle. It would also uh, make it a crime to deny access to a poll watcher. In addition, voters would be required to include a driver's license number or the last four digits of a Social Security number on a a vote-by-mail application and the envelope containing their ballot. Individuals uh, who help voters cast their ballot due to language or physical needs, must fill out a document listing their name, address, relationship to the voter, and whether they're being paid by a candidate or political committee. Those who drive uh, three or more people to the polls would also be required to fill out a similar form unless all vehicle occupants are family members. Now, The Secretary of State will also be required to work with the Department of Public Safety to provide data on a monthly basis from the existing statewide computerized voter registration list to be used for verification of citizenship status on voter registration applications. 
Well, unlike Senate Bill 7, which was the original voting bill that was killed by Democrats in the state legislature's regular session, Senate Bill 1 doesn't include two controversial provisions. Now, you're not hearing any reference to that and reports on it, but those two were dropped by the Republicans. One would have created a process to make it easier to overturn election results based on claims of voter fraud. And the other provision banned Sunday morning voting, which was popular among black churches, souls to the polls events during early voting in the 2020 presidential election. So what's in House Bill 3? Well, House Bill 3 includes many of the same provisions of Senate Bill 1. In addition, it would make it a crime for public officials to offer or send vote-by-mail applications to those who have not requested them. The proposal uh, comes as Texas looks to join more than 15 other states. Republicans who control the state government have passed laws tightening voting access rules. The push follows unsubstantiated claims from former President Donald Trump that the 2020 election was stolen and rigged. Well, besides the election bill, other issues on the legislative docket include bail overhaul, border security, social media censorship, legislative branch funding, family violence prevention, limiting transgender student access to school sports, abortion-inducing drugs, additional payments for retired Texas teachers, critical race theory, and budgetary Issues. Uh, Now, I didn't find Jim Crow in uh, that legislation. Now, you may oppose it on grounds that um, you oppose the the dictates of it. But to suggest that this is more controversial than uh, the the Civil War, that it threatens our voting system uh, and democracy in the same way or in a greater ways than the Civil War is just nonsense. And to suggest that it's a return to Jim Crow is equally nonsense. And it's uh, frustrating to me to hear those references made. Because if you know about Jim Crow as it actually existed, as you hear firsthand from family members who lived with and under Jim Crow, this is insulting. So that said, well, in a major speech on Tuesday, the president linked voter ID requirements to repressive Jim Crow laws in the South after the Civil War, declaring it's not hyperbole and insists it's time to ask, are you on the wrong uh, right side of truth or lies? Well, the president delivered his fiery remarks at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia in opposition to state election reform laws. The president said his Justice Department would bring civil actions against states because of their election laws and called on Congress to pass legislation to give the federal government control over election administration in the states. Now, generally, Republicans say state reforms are designed to ensure fair and clean elections. The president and other Democrats argue that Republicans want to suppress turnout. Well, here are six of the president's claims and how they stand up to the facts. Are you on the right side of truth or lies is the question the president raised. And we'll see whether or not um, you are Uh, Jim Crow assault. That's how he described these, uh, particularly in Texas, but others as well. He made some bleak historical comparisons, including one that has become familiar in recent months. The 21st century Jim Crow assault is real. It's unrelenting. And we are going to challenge it vigorously a clear appeal to the African-American community uh, with the presumption that they don't um, aren't going to think very deeply about Jim Crow and whether or not this reflects that. The president later turned it up uh, a notch. He framed the issue as a brutal and seeming to uh, as brutal, rather, uh, as a battle and seeming to imply that the January 6th riot at the Capitol might have been worse than a war that saw 700,000 deaths. Now, it's interesting to me that members of Congress are fixated on what happened January um, 6th, primarily because it was focused on them, but have very little concern about what went on all across the country where private citizens 
um, suffer the wrath of uh, protests and so on. I mean, fine, be upset about the sixth. It's appropriate. Um, but the self-interest part of it is frustrating to me. Well, the president um, said we are facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. That's not hyperbole since the Civil War, Biden said. Conf- um, Confederates back then never breached the Capitol as insurrectionists did on January the 6th. I'm not saying this to alarm you. I'm saying this because you should be alarmed. Okay. Uh, The Jim Crow era following the Civil War saw a series of racist laws imposed in the South at the state and local levels for about 100 years. Now, some of those Jim Crow laws overtly denied black people the right to vote. And while they lasted into the mid to um, late 60s, arguably amounted to a much more serious threat to democracy than requiring voters to show a photo ID. Now, these laws required poll tests and other obstacles for black voters before they could uh, cast a ballot. The laws also restricted employment, housing, and educational opportunities for black Americans. That's not what we're talking about in these voting laws. The schools, parks, recreation facilities, and other public buildings routinely were segregated throughout the South, as were public restrooms and water fountains. The Jim Crow era included territory activities um, by the Ku Klux Klan that extended all the way into the Pacific Northwest, where the Ku Klux Klan was very active here in the state of Oregon a uh, semi-secret society that committed violent and deadly acts against blacks, including lynchings, often with impunity. And the uh, supercharged and occasionally factually challenged rhetoric the president uh, declared, apparently to Republican lawmakers, have you no shame? Well, president, have you no shame making these um, these kinds of comparison? He added, uh, we have to ask, are you on the right side of truth or lies, fact or fiction, justice or injustice, democracy or autocracy? Do you know history and are you just trying to make political points? I would add to that lineup. Well, I'm just about out of time. There are several other things I'll maybe bring up on another occasion, maybe even in the second hour of the program. Uh, but again, facts checking some of the claims that are being made about this, um, some of the voting Um, legislation that's being debated or not in the case of Texas across the country. Coming up, we'll hear from Pastor Rich Jones. For those of you who are anticipating Michael Sherrard, I apologize. Um, But Pastor Jones, you won't be disappointed. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. And as promised, I've asked Pastor Rich Jones. He's senior pastor at Calvary Chapel Worship Center in Hillsboro. I've asked him to join us to talk about the pandemic, its impact on the church in general. And moving forward, is church attendance still relevant? What does the scripture have to say about meeting uh, together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together? So we're going to get into all of that with uh, with Pastor Rich. Thank or excuse me, Pastor Jones. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. You feel free to call me Pastor Rich or just even Rich is fine. (laughs) Okay. Well, let me first um, just ask you to tell us a little bit about how um, Calvary Chapel Worship Center responded when the the pandemic hit. Uh, Churches were required to make some pretty quick decisions about what to do with their congregations. How did you all respond when we were told um, that meeting in uh, church services with large numbers of people was no longer going to be permitted? Well, of course, it forced all the churches out there to go online and to provide services through online streaming only. And um, for a lot of churches that were not doing that already, 
it put them in a really difficult predicament because now they're scrambling to catch up with all the technology to make that possible. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we had already been doing live streaming for many years and already had built a very strong foundation. So it was very, um, you might say, easy because we'd already been doing it. But uh, I, I really felt terrible for the small and medium churches that were so struggling in those early days, particularly. So it was difficult. And uh, uh, we were very, very fortunate, as I say, that we had all that uh, ready to go. But it was, uh, it was an interesting thing to watch because now, of course, people are, are staying home. Uh, they're watching services in their jammies. Um, and you know, some people were actually like, Hey, we're kind of liking this, you know, this is, this is not so bad after all, we're sitting here with our family and, uh, you know, we can turn the volume up and uh, this is getting nice, you know? So it was, it was an interesting transition for sure. Yeah, it certainly was. And you're right for smaller churches that hadn't been using the technology, the learning curve was a real challenge. Uh, to present what they would normally do on a Sunday morning uh, to their congregants who are now staying uh, staying at home. Did you have to adjust the way your service was was done when you live stream? Now, you mentioned that you had been live streaming before, but did you have to make uh, adjustments to how you presented your Sunday mornings for the most part based on the fact that most of the congregation was no longer in the sanctuary? They're watching from home. Well, actually, when this first started, literally there was no one in the sanctuary because, you know, all gatherings were not allowed. And uh, so it was very difficult because as a pastor, you know, you're, you're, you're speaking to the camera. And that's not exactly the same dynamic as having mm-hmm. a, you know, church sanctuary full of people. First of all, there's no one there to laugh at your jokes, <laughs> which you know. So I assume that they laugh at your jokes when they're in the sanctuary? (laughs) That's a good question. Do they really? I don't know. But what we did was we brought the cameras, you know, closer. and, uh, and, And I tried to really understand, like, there are a lot of people behind that camera. I'm speaking directly to those people. And so the, the dynamic, you know, really changed, but it became intimate. And I think in many ways, dynamic, we tried to keep it as normal as possible. So we kept the sanctuary. We kept, you know, the worship team in full. We tried to do everything to keep it as normal as, as possible. But it's pretty difficult when there's no one in the sanctuary, for sure. Mm-hmm. But it, it was, um, it, let's just say, interesting. I was glad when we could finally uh, have people back in the sanctuary. But as as you remember, I think we were only allowed to have maybe it was 50, I think, to start with yeah. uh, per service. And then it went down to 25. And uh, people are making reservations. And uh, it was very difficult to have 25 in a big room. That, that just was very difficult. But at the same time, hey, we're saving lives. And that's the way I, I felt about it. I think there was a, a number of per, uh, churches that were kind of casting off all uh, caution and and uh, but I just can't do it. I, I just have far too much concern. I think for people's health, and we wanted to do what we could to keep people safe. <clears throat> but when the restrictions started to be lifted, we were so happy to bring people yeah. back because we need each other. We need church. We need to worship. We need to be together. 
Yeah, we are designed for that. Now, I know for many smaller churches, uh, they, they've been devastated by the pandemic. They weren't able to continue, and many churches just simply had to, to uh, close their doors. Um, how challenging was it for you to maintain relationship with congregants, not just as one large group, but with individual families and maintaining um, the, the support that you um, that the church relies on to um, to keep staff going and to keep facilities uh, up and running? Was that a challenge for you to have not just the congregation as a whole coming together with a live stream, but somehow connecting as the church uh, in other ways that is typical when you're actually attending church? Well, it was almost impossible because without that being together, Without being actually in person, you might say, we can't really have the same connections. And so it became a real difficult thing. How do you, how do you uh, really even know what the needs are without them, you know, without them saying something? So it, it, it was very, very challenging. But, you know, here's another interesting uh, factoid. It did also provide, uh, present opportunities. Um, in the sense that now that you're on online, now that we're online uh, only, um, it created an opportunity to expand our reach. And uh, Mm -hmm. I never expected this. If someone would have told me in advance what would happen, I I would never have guessed it. Literally, people joined our church from all over the country and the world. I mean, literally joined, like being involved in small groups, in prayer groups. Uh, we had a gal from France who who uh, responded and said, this is my church. Is there anyone who can disciple me? So we connected her with one of our older gals, who even today, <clears throat> a year and something later, is still meeting and discipling her. Um, we had a gal uh, join one of our small groups, and as people were introducing themselves, uh, the person said, oh, I'm from L.A. I'm literally in L.A., but this is my home church. That's amazing. It, it was, and uh, people would send cards and letters from all over the country. Um, I again, I never would have expected that. But it's also, you know, there's another interesting aspect to it, which is that <clears throat> I think that it's part of the consumerism mentality of our nation, and that people were able to very quickly kind of shop for other churches because. You could you could be part of a church across the country just as easily as you could be part of a church in your community, and so people started looking for those services that were more full and robust, and you know, <clears throat> meeting their needs that way. And so for me, there were some advantages, but I was desperately looking forward to getting people back together again. We were very fortunate in uh, financially, people stepped up and understood that these are difficult times. And I've heard from many of my pastor friends who said people stepped up, people in their congregations, they they stood up and and supported. And I I am so thankful for when this happened, you know, March uh, of last year, my first thought was, what are we going to do? Like, we don't have people in the sanctuary. How are we going to even pay our bills? But as I say, it was in people stepped up. I praise God for the heart of people who understood that church is important. We must support it. 
And uh, so praise God for that. And I've heard from many pastors who've said the same thing. Well, that's encouraging to hear. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we return, I'd like to talk a little bit about what reopening the church. It was gradual, and as you mentioned earlier, in some cases, very few were allowed to attend a service at one time. But we'll talk about uh, the controversy over masks and no masks and how challenging that might have been as well. Again, we're talking with Pastor Rich Jones. He's senior pastor at Calvary Chapel Worship Center in Hillsboro, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Pastor Rich Jones. He's senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Worship Center in Hillsboro, where they've been live streaming long before the pandemic. Uh, we're talking about church attendance before and after the pandemic and how relevant it is um, in the 21st century. Now, just before the break, I mentioned, um, you know, returning to church when the governor allowed smaller numbers to attend church and then those numbers increased. Was there a challenge for you in terms of mass? Mask wearing as opposed to not mask wearing. Um, the church seemed to be, and I'm generalizing the church in general, uh, there seemed to be some controversy over whether or not people were willing to comply with the governor's wishes. Was that a challenge for you at all when Calvary Chapel uh, Worship Center began opening, reopening its doors? Well, challenge, yes. <clears throat> but we took a position that masks were important. And in fact, I put a video out to our, uh, our church at large. It was a YouTube video that did actually uh, get sent to many. But my position I took was that Christians should wear a mask. And the reason is Philippians 2. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That is the definition of humility. And masks, as we know, do work. They do help people from getting sick. So therefore, like my heart is to protect people. If we're praying for people to be healed, we ought to be praying for them to be also saved from uh, a virus. So I was all in. I think we 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 need to take a stand to make a, a leadership position on this. Now, at some point, you know, of course, uh, these all fell off and the restrictions <clears throat> got taken away. So praise God for that. But was it controversial? Yes, it was. Now, we actually did something different. Uh, I don't know any of the churches that approached it this way, but we actually put cafe tables in our sanctuary and allowed people to bring food and their drinks and whatnot. So they're sitting in the sanctuary, and when they're at the tables, they can take their mask off. So early on, we kind of had a bit of a compromise that way. Um, but we ask them to make sure that when they're greeting people, when they're standing up or singing, that they make sure they have their mask on. So we accommodated it. We made a compromise out of it. But at the same time, I felt compelled that we need to look out for the interests of others, not just our own personal selves. And I know a lot of it was political. And, and frankly, I'm not much of a political animal. I, I am. I'm just standing for the gospel. So if, if that makes sense, it was controversial, yeah, yes. But praise God that those restrictions are off. You know, here's another interesting thing. You might remember that all of these guidelines and restrictions on numbers and how many you can gather. At some point, if you remember, the governor actually changed all restrictions on churches and made them guidelines and were uh, not going to enforce them. 
And that happened uh, many months ago. So I think that kind of created an opportunity for churches to loosen up a little bit. Mm -hmm. But we still had to be very careful because this, you know, this was a real thing. This COVID was real. And it was making people a lot of sick, uh, a lot of people sick. So I really wanted to protect them. Yeah. So we worked our way through it. And fortunately now, of course, all restrictions are off. Now the question is, are they going to come back? Yeah, and I'm reading a number of studies suggesting that um, people are not going to return to church, that they've gotten comfortable with uh, attending church at home, uh, worshiping from the comfort of their own home. And I wanted to ask how um, how uh, members of Calvary Chapel Hillsboro, how they have responded. Are you seeing people return in numbers that you would have expected prior to the pandemic, or is it a slow uh, drip as we've seen in other places around the state? Well, actually, um, I predicted from the beginning that once we started to gather back together again, that it would be a slow roll. And uh, that is exactly what we're seeing. It's been, what, now 14, 16 months? I don't remember the exact number now, but it's been a long enough time that people have developed this pattern. They like being home watching the services. Um, It's very convenient, but there's something missing. It's not the same. Um, worship is not the same. Fellowship is not the same. Like we need that fellowship. We need that connection to our fellow brother in the Lord. We need to be in fellowship and pray together. What we have seen is that I would estimate maybe half, a little more than half have returned, um, which is not anywhere near what we would want to see, but Mm-hmm. It's gradually, every week is changing. At the same time, interestingly enough, we are finding many new families coming. So um, it's just an interesting dynamic. Who would have guessed uh, all of this would happen? But um, many of the people that I uh, that I thought would come back have not, and yet all these new people are coming. So it's very, very interesting. I think it's, frankly, I think it's going to be, couple more years before we really see people coming back the way they did before the pandemic. I think they're going to have to recognize the necessity of meeting, the need for fellowship, the need for praying together, the need for worshiping together. I think that until they miss that, they're going to just continue watching from home. Hmm. Um, One of the questions I wanted to put to you today is whether or not church attendance is is mandatory. Um, I, I think sometimes our felt need uh, trails behind what we should actually be doing because it's what we're uh, we're told that we ought to be doing. What does the scripture have to say about church attendance? I, I would agree with you. We are designed for the kind of fellowship that you uh, just described, but we may not, you know, feel like we live in America. We kind of do what we want whenever we want. Mm-hmm. And if you have mm-hmm. technology and that's an option, eh, next best thing. Uh, if we don't sense that need, if we don't feel it, what does the scripture say uh, that might guide us in making the decision? I'm I'm going to return to the fellowshipping with the saints as opposed to, um, you know, watching church in my skivvies. Well, you mentioned that scripture earlier, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together out of Hebrews. And that's exactly right. I think that is a directive of the Lord. Do not forsake. That's a pretty strong word. <clears throat> and uh, therefore, I think it is the heart of the Lord that we would assemble, that we would be together for prayer and fellowship and connection, because there's an encouragement, there is a strengthening 
together. You know, if you if you take a fire and you separate the embers of that fire, it's going to go out. It's gathering those embers together actually creates the intensity of that heat. And to me, it's an illustration of the church gathering together. There's an intensity in the scripture, excuse me, in the spirit that causes something to happen in the soul. You know, he inhabits the praises of his people where two or more are gathered. I am there in their midst. There's so many encouragements to gather, to worship, but also to encourage one another. If you're discouraged and you're downhearted, you come and you part, be part of the fellowship, you're going to go away strengthened and encouraged. Your brother can pray with you. Your sister can encourage you. We need each other. And there's where I think the big miss uh, happens when you're just watching church on, on the screen. You're, you're missing out on all of those that God had intended for you because God knew what he was saying when he said, don't avoid uh, forsake the assembling together. He knew what he was saying because he knew we needed it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the absence of a strong sense uh, and desire to return to the church, we need to look to what the scriptures have to say, because I've often found that obedience can be followed by feelings. You know, I might really appreciate what the scripture is telling me I need to do once I've walked in obedience and returning to the church, um, will remind us of, oh, this is why God calls us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, to be in fellowship um, with one another. Uh, are you making any major changes in uh, in the church as a result of this last year and a half and what that has done to the culture as well as to congregants? Well, of course, we had to make all of the changes that, that these guidelines put forth, you know, social distancing and sanitizing and all of those things that we've done. But we are now rolling back. Um, you know, even our now that we've moved away from the cafe tables and put sanctuary seats uh, back, they were still socially distant, you know, six feet rows. So now we're starting to move those back and uh, and do all of the things that... I think that uh, create a sense of normalcy. But now in our church, we've also tried to create a tremendous sense of family and and connection and fellowship by offering meals together. Actually, we in, before the pandemic, we would have dinners together every Wednesday night, every Saturday night, every Sunday night. These are before our, our weekly services on those nights. But there are opportunities opportunities for fellowship and connection and making friends and meeting new people. We haven't been able to start those back up again. And uh, so now we're, we're starting to make those plans. We think by, let's say, September, we ought to be fully back, you might say. So we've had to kind of accommodate slowly. Um, children's ministries, I'm noticing that families with children are the actually the slowest to come back. Um, the kids, you know, didn't didn't have opportunity for vaccines, and so mm-hmm. they were a lot more vulnerable. <clears throat> the, the kids with families with kids are the slowest to get back. You know who's the coming back fastest? Youth group. They huh. love what an example, right? They love fellowship. Yeah. They love connection. They love being together. The so youth group is exploding because kids want to be with their friends and and worship together and study together and like it's it's feels a lot more normal in youth group, which is exciting. I love to see what God is doing in the youth group. Now we just need, I think, all of the families with children and the full families to come back. And so, as I say, I think it's going to be 
another year before we really see it back to what it was, you know, before all of this. It's going to change. I think, frankly, this has hurt the church in a tremendous way. Um, And it's going to take some time to rebuild it. But God is still on the throne, and God's going to rebuild it. He loves his church. It's his bride, and he's going to strengthen and edify it. So I have every confidence the church is definitely not done. It's going to Amen. get stronger and stronger because uh, the, the people still love the Lord. They just need to recognize the necessity of that fellowship that you said. Uh, it's even mandated in the Scripture, so I think people recognize it more and more as time goes on. Absolutely. Well, Pastor Rich, thank you so much for your leadership in our community, and I thank you for taking the time to talk with us today about the church and um, how we're moving forward. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Glad to have you with us for this second hour. Winding through some of the news stories of the day, a professor singled out an average white guy. That's how he described him, an average white guy, in a lecture saying skin color benefits him over black students. I'm not sure the uh, student was that thrilled about being uh, lifted up as an example. Heather McDonald says we are seeing slow motion riots right now in the U.S. and anarchy is coming to our cities. And a social media influencer plummeted to her death while snapping waterfall selfies. I cannot tell you how many of these stories I read on a daily basis, people taking selfies of one sort or another and plunge to their death or otherwise um, their lives are ended because they wanted a good picture of themselves doing something that was daring. Not worth it. Don't do it. Just saying. Well, some Notre Dame students and faculty are outraged by a proposed campus Chick-fil-A and um, the American League extends the all-star game winning streak with the latest victory over the National League, for those of you who follow such things. Well, the Norwegian Cruise Line is suing Florida over its vaccine passport ban, and a ban on handgun sales to 18- to 20-year-olds is unconstitutional, according to an appeals court. Stacey Abrams should give Georgia $100 million in fundraised cash over the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, a political advocacy group says. They're a little put out the money that uh, Georgia did not enjoy. And Apple's potential buy now, pay later plan is sending the sector tumbling. Well, the Biden administration to desperate Cubans, you are not welcome here. CBS News reported that immigration um, uh, reporter DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says Haitian and Cuban migrants and asylum seekers who try to come to the United States by boat will not be allowed to enter the country. Even if asylum seekers establish fear of persecution, they will resettled, will be resettled in third countries, Mayorkas said, whose father, by the way, immigrated from Cuba, escaped the communist regime uh, himself. This is fascinating to me, given the policy on the southern border. Mark Hemingway, it may be that uh, Cubans tend to vote Republican. I don't know. That's speculation on my part. Uh, Mark uh, Hemingway says, guess they, uh, they don't think Cubans will vote Democratic, ergo they don't have a claim for asylum. Meanwhile, the New York Times reports old activists are thrilled to see so many young involved now. But the story notes human rights groups said it may take several days to get a clear picture of the scale of the government response because spotty phone and Internet connections have made it difficult to track how many people uh, were taken into custody. I've seen one video in which a young woman was 
actually speaking to the media when she was hauled off by authorities. From another uh, story, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was striking all the right notes, meeting with Cuban-American leaders in a roundtable discussion to discuss the deteriorating situation in Cuba. The governor also corrected the Biden team for falsely painting the protests in Cuba as a reaction to the pandemic. And Karen Swallow Pryor posted a letter from a pastor in Cuba asking for others to pray for the city, where he says it is in complete collapse as COVID is everywhere and there is no medicine. So I would take that very seriously. Pray for the city, this Cuban pastor has asked. Well, President Biden claims voting laws are the biggest test of democracy since the Civil War. The president claimed this year alone, 17 states have enacted, not just proposed, but enacted 28 new laws to make it harder for Americans to vote. Not to mention, and catch this, nearly 400 additional bills Republican members of state legislatures are trying to pass. The 21st century Jim Crow assault is real. Talked about it a little bit in the previous um, hour. From another story, speaking from the National Constitutional Center in Philadelphia on Tuesday, the president uh, condemned the wave of election integrity laws recently passed in red states, calling the laws an assault on the right to vote and the most significant threat to the U.S. since the Civil War. Wow. Tom Cotton says if Joe Biden really believes this, he's lost his mind. Rich Lowry says, according to Joe Biden, asking people to provide driver's license numbers on their absentee ballots is almost as bad as a half a century seceding and fighting a years long war for its independence that killed more than 600,000 Americans. That's bad. Dan Crenshaw says if these Texas election reforms were made law today, not a single voter would notice. The only people who would notice are activists that try to fill out other people's ballots. The Republicans' uh, retort is that we're trying to make um, voting uh, easier and fraud more difficult. Senate Democrats announced a $3.5 trillion budget package to expand Medicare. A big chunk of these tax dollars would also go to combat climate change, whatever that looks like. The story notes party leaders plan to fashion their agenda using a process known as reconciliation a move that only requires them to stick together in order to turn their vision into law. It does not require the traditional 60 votes to advance. To help rally support and keep the caucus together, Biden plans to visit with congressional Democrats today. Well, New York Democrats are seeking a ban on Chick-fil-A for rest stops in the state, claiming Chick-fil-A through the charitable wing of its business has a history of donating millions of dollars to organizations that oppose LGBTQ organizations imposing their view on the public. So they don't want Chick-fil-A at rest stops. Chicago gang members outnumber police nine to one, and it's getting worse as police officers retire. One doesn't need to speculate much on why police are leaving the force in Chicago and other cities. Uh, Newsrooms continue to decline, down 26% since 2008. Digital is the only area of increase. The only reason the decline isn't worse. Well, families are suing Universal Studios because a character made the okay hand gesture. You might want to make note because this is something else we shouldn't do, apparently. And they had decided it was a white power sign for their trauma. They want $30,000. Well, drug overdose deaths soared to a record high in 2020 as COVID lockdowns overtook much of the country. More than 93,000 Americans passed away due to overdose, more than 20,000 death increase from the year before, according to the Centers for Disease Control. Deaths attributable to natural, synthetic, and semi-synthetic opioids, as well as cocaine and 
Other drugs all saw upticks, but a surge in opioid deaths were chiefly responsible for the discouraging numbers going up from 50,963 in 2019 to 69,710 in 2020. Dr. Nora Volkow, director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, called the data chilling. This marked not only the highest number of deaths ever, but the largest increase in the number of deaths since 1999. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Tokyo Olympics, Olympics rather, are going to look very different than any previous games in modern era due to the coronavirus, of course, and it's going to even affect how athletes interact with each other. Well, according to the International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach, on Wednesday he said there will be no handshaking, there will be no hugs during the ceremony. Uh, he added that medal winners will have to hang their awards around their own necks instead of the usual fanfare that comes with the ceremonies. Uh, the medals will not um, be given around the neck. They will be presented to the athlete on a tray, and then the athlete will take the medal, him or herself. It will be made sure that the person who will put the medal on the tray will do so only with uh, disinfected gloves so that the athletes can be sure that nobody touched them before. Now, this is all obviously necessary, but when you're in the Olympic Games, you have to think about not just that singular competition, but the fact that for many of these athletes, they've spent much of their young adult life, and in some cases even uh, earlier, preparing for this uh, this moment of glory. And to have it stripped of all the pomp and circumstance that they've come to expect and look forward to is sort of a sad commentary on the, the time that we're in. I mean, there's not much you can do about it. And there's concern in Japan because of a rise in the coronavirus. But Olympic organizers announced last week the Games will be held without spectators as well as the illness continues to grip part of Japan. Now, they're trying to protect the athletes. They're trying to protect the people of Japan and would-be spectators who would come from all over the world. We have shown this responsibility since the day of the postponement, Bach said last week, and we uh, will also show it today, and we will support any measure which is necessary to have a safe and secure Olympic and Paralympic Games for the Japanese people and all of the participants. So this will be a television event like no other. Organizers previously allowed venues to be filled to 50% capacity with crowds not to exceed 10,000. Athletes, media, and sponsors were the only foreigners allowed at the Games. About 11,000 Olympians and uh, 4,400 Paralympians are set to enter Japan over the next few weeks with tens of thousands of officials, judges, administrators, sponsors, and media uh, members. The IOC said more than 80% of um, residents of the Olympic uh, Village will be vaccinated, 80%. It's not required for those who, for whatever reason, have elected not to, uh, to be vaccinated. So uh, I wonder if there's going to be the uh, opening ceremony, which is really fun to watch. You watch the athletes come in with their flags and their uniforms and the pomp and circumstance of that. Uh, I wonder, and I haven't heard yet, if the opening ceremony is going to be a part of uh, this year's event either. So anyway, it will be a a different event than we've seen in the past. Well, the poll says that 1.8 million Americans have turned down jobs due to unemployment benefits. The reasons for turning down the jobs offered the um, job offers while unemployed uh, range from, well, child care obligations to the job required too many hours of work. In fact, let me tell you what the uh, what the figures are. 
13.8% said they had child care obligations. Not surprising, given the fact that kids have not been able to do all of the things that they might otherwise have done during this pandemic. COVID-19 or any combination of reasons associated with the pandemic, about 13%. I received enough money from unemployment insurance without having to work, said 13%. Health and medical limitations, 13%, said, no, I'm not going to accept a job for that reason. Um, I was not given enough money to return to work, 12.1%. The job was not within my desired industry or function, 11.4%. That's not too terribly surprising. The job didn't allow remote work at 11%, and that could be people who had the job and left it. School and training, 10%, said that's why I didn't accept the job. The job required fixed working hours, not enough flexibility, 10%. Family and personal obligations, as well as the job didn't offer enough hours of work. So you had the contrast, not enough flexibility, too many hours of work, which came out at 9% or 8% respectively. So this poll of 1.8 million Americans uh, says that they've turned down jobs um, for a number of reasons. Uh, why it matters? Well, U.S. businesses have been wrestling with labor supply shortages. Folks capable of working have opted not to work for a variety of reasons. One of the more politically controversial reasons has been the availability of unemployment insurance benefits, in particular emergency provisions that were introduced because of COVID-19, the pandemic. 26 states indeed have opted to cut that emergency benefit early with the intention of incentivizing people to take jobs that are currently open. Now, there's at least one lawsuit against one state that's chosen to do that. I'll watch with interest to see what uh, what comes of it. But 26 states have said, no, we want people working here. By the numbers, um, <clears throat> Morning Consult, they surveyed about 5,000 U.S. adults from June 22nd to the 25th. And of those actively collecting unemployment benefits, 29% said that they were turned down jobs, uh, job offers. Um, they had done it uh, during the pandemic. In response to a follow-up question, 45% of the uh, group said that they turned down jobs specifically because of the generosity of the benefits that were available. Uh, extrapolating from the 14.1 million adults collecting benefits as of June 19th, Morning Consult concluded that 1.8 million people turned down job offers because of the benefits. Now, to be clear, this is in regards to any and all unemployment insurance benefits, including the standard 26-week worth of benefits, as well as the emergency benefits that are set to end by September. By the way, there's some debate as to whether or not to make that permanent. Furthermore, all 1.8 million won't necessarily find employment quickly as jobs once offered to them may, well, they may have been filled by others. Uh, Morning Consult Chief Economist uh, cautions against concluding that this completely validates calls to cut unemployment benefits early. The bottom line, he suggests, is getting people to move from relying on unemployment insurance to wage income doesn't just automatically happen. There's going to be some searching and matching frictions at work. Sort of an interesting set of numbers. Well, an Iranian operatives, uh, I should say multiple, are being accused of plotting to kidnap an American of Iranian descent in an indictment unsealed in federal court in Manhattan. Four Iranians were charged with conspiring to kidnap the journalist and author uh, Masiya, well, I'll just leave it at that, who has long been a staunch critic of the Iranian government. Meanwhile, from another story, the State Department informed Congress late Tuesday that it would waive sanctions on Iran's illicit oil trade so that the country can access frozen funds from South Korea and Japan. The same day, the Department of Justice announced charges on an Iranian spy network 
sought to kidnap an American. Must be the new math. It doesn't really add up. 8,400 Canadians died in one year while waiting for health care, according to a new study. Most simply waiting for a diagnostic test or appointment. And that's just from the areas that released the results. Well, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle received an environmental award for promising to only have two children. Population Matters, <clears throat> who apparently isn't following statistics that say we're underpopulated, particularly uh, in the West, explained in choosing and publicly declaring their intention to limit their family to two, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex are helping to ensure a better future for their children and providing a role model for other families. Having a smaller family reduces our impact on the earth and provides a better chance for all our children, their children, and the future generations to flourish on a healthy planet. We commend the Duke and Duchess for taking this enlightened decision and for affirming that a smaller family is also a happy family. Again, apparently they have missed the stats that say that underpopulation is becoming a serious issue. Well, in government and politics, Senate Democrats announced a $3.5 trillion Go at a loan reconciliation budget agreement. And the National Republican Congressional Committee is boasting a record haul in the second quarter, outpacing the Democratic uh, National Committee. Communist Cuba is cracking down on demonstrations. Dissidents say police are arresting, beating and killing protesters. Uh, double standards. Uh, Biden's open border DHS chiefs tells Cubans hoping to make the sea voyage. You will not enter the United States. Meanwhile, Congressman. Mario Diaz-Balart introduced a resolution to support the Cuban protests. Only Republicans signed on. In the uh, category of non-copus mentis, the Biden administration waives sanctions on the Iranian oil trade. And Russian ransomware group Our Evil's uh, website is down following the um, Kesaya attack. And the U.S. Navy's surface fleet is unprepared to win a future conflict a watchdog has found. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're working our way through some of the headline news of the uh, of the day. Well, inflation spiked in June to the fastest pace in 13 years, and small business inflation metrics hit the highest since 1981. Around the world, there's deadly rioting and looting in South Africa after ex-president Jacob Zuma was jailed. And China began military flights from disputed South China Sea bases. Almost two-thirds of Americans believe Cuba should pay pandemic reparations. Or excuse me, China should pay pandemic reparations, according to a new poll. On this day in history, by the way, 1789, in an event symbolizing the start of the French Revolution, citizens of Paris stormed the Bastille prison and released the seven prisoners inside. 1798, the U.S. Congress passes the Sedition Act, making it a federal crime to publish false, scandalous, or malicious writings about the United States government. My, how far we've come since 1798. 1976, Jimmy Carter wins the Democratic presidential nomination at the party's convention in New York. 1980, on this day in history, the Republican National Convention opens in Detroit, where presumptive nominee Ronald Reagan tells a welcoming rally he and his supporters are determined to make America great again. 2003, newspaper columnist Robert Novak publicly reveals the CIA employment of Valerie Plame, wife of Joseph Wilson, a former U.S. ambassador in Africa, who said the administration had twisted pre-war intelligence on Iraq. 
And on this day in history, 2013, thousands of demonstrators across the country protest a Florida jury's decision to clear George Zimmerman and the shooting death of Trayvon Martin. 2016, terror strikes Bastille Day celebrations in uh, French Riviera City of Nice uh, as a large truck plows into a festive crowd, killing 86 people in an attack claimed by Islamic State extremists. The driver is shot dead by police. Well, a $3.5 trillion soft infrastructure bill, part two of President Biden's overall plan, has the approval of the Budget Committee chairman, Senator Bernie Sanders. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced on Tuesday night Democrats hope to pass the bill using the reconciliation process, which requires 51 votes and not uh, uh, not more. All Republicans oppose the bill, saying child care, home health care, Medicare expansion, free education and the rest of it don't fall under the definition of traditional infrastructure. But in order to um, pass the uh, the bill, with, in, you have to use the reconciliation process so that the filibuster can't be applied. Well, former U.S. Representative Mike Mulvaney, who headed, to, uh, headed the White House Office of Management and Budget under President Trump, said there's no way Democrats can pay for this without raising taxes on the middle class. My reaction is just that there's no way to pay for it, and I think they're starting to acknowledge there's really no way to do so. There's just not enough rich people in the country that they can raise taxes on. There's not enough corporations. He's saying theirs. It should be there are, but that's a whole other subject. The corporate tax is a small fraction of what the government takes in every single year. You could raise it dramatically and it wouldn't raise that much more money. So what you're going to see, he went on to say, it's an educated guess. Over the next couple of weeks is a lot of smoke and mirrors. One of my favorites is... There's going to be um, close. Uh, they're going to close the tax gap. They're going to spend more money at the IRS and the IRS is uh, magically going to take in money. This is something that we were not willing to assume in our first Trump budget way back in 2018 because it would have been attacked as a gimmick. There's going to be a lot of smoke and mirrors. There's going to be a lot of um, wailing and gnashing of teeth about paying for things. But at the end of the day, if anything passes, it will be unpaid for. He predicts, well, Schumer noted that the Democrats uh, three point five trillion dollar bill, when combined with the part one compromise bill, will total four point one trillion dollars. Every major program that the president has asked us for is funded in the robust, a very robust way, he said about part two, the three point five trillion dollar plan. And in addition, we are making some additions to that. Most important, something that Senator Sanders has led and convinced America is so important which is a robust expansion of Medicare, including money for dental, vision, and hearing. Well, Schumer said Democrats are very proud of this plan, and he admitted we're going to get this done for the sake of making average Americans' lives a whole lot better. But are Senate Democrats on board with uh, such massive spending? Well, that's a great question, Mulvaney uh, said when asked. I think Joe Manchin has uh, sort of become their uh, poster child uh, who still uh, cares about fiscal responsibility He can do that. He can take on uh, Chuck Schumer because of where he's from. Remember, Donald Trump won West Virginia by high two digits in the last couple of election cycles. So it doesn't hurt Manchin to go up against Schumer politically. But there are many other Democrats who are uncomfortable with this. He's not the only moderate. You've got two of them out of Arizona, as a matter of fact. So my guess is while Manchin uh, gets a lot of attention, your intuition is uh, correct 
There are a lot of Democrats who are not as comfortable with this, but they're more than happy to let Joe take the heat. Well, Mulvaney said politics, not economics, is the only way to view the Democrats' attempt to force their social agenda through an evenly divided Senate. Well, we'll see what actually happens as uh, this legislation does ultimately move through Congress. Well, President Biden on the 9th of July issued an executive order purportedly to promote competition. The order, though, is yet another uh, directive to promote federal government intervention in the economy, pushing policies that may not even be authorized by Congress and that could trample on states' rights. It uh, punishes economic success and presumes that when a business gets big, its size is inherently harmful. The order would have federal bureaucrats centrally plan the economy and arrogantly assumes that they know how industries should be structured. Nobody, including the federal government, has the knowledge to be able to make those types of decisions, but they'll be charged with doing just that. It would empower bureaucrats to further micromanage how businesses operate and serve their customers, such as by trying to dictate airline and shipping practices, meddling with private railroad contracts and threatening the railroad's property rights, and making it much more difficult for firms across the economy to grow through mergers and acquisitions. Well, the edict from the president claims to promote competition, yet it actually suppresses it and hinders innovation. The order protects failed incumbents by encouraging them to go to the government for favors to help them against companies that customers actually prefer. If you think cronyism is bad now, this executive order would make it much worse and uh, favorable from at least the government standpoint. The executive order would bring back the so-called net neutrality rules that would hurt competition by, for example, making it more difficult for new Internet service providers to attract new customers away from existing ones by offering differentiated services. It would discourage technology startups from getting started in the first place by blocking the most uh, popular exit strategy for startup firms namely getting acquired. Some of the most dynamic new businesses in America came out of this process and slamming the door shut might slam the door altogether on the next generation of innovators. The executive order discusses concerns over a handful of firms allegedly dominating industries, such as in the meat industry, yet it fails to acknowledge how the government's own meddling drives those structural outcomes. One example, it fails to uh, to mention that federal regulations create barriers for the sale of meat and poultry products in ways that favor the largest processing plants. As is too common with the far uh, left, the Biden executive order reflects an extremely pessimistic view of the country. In reality, the U.S. is the envy of the world across industries, from farming to trucking to technology, because American companies best meet the needs of consumers. That success is because of the innovation and hard work of American individuals and businesses, not because of bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. They may need to learn that lesson, or at least Washington may need to learn that lesson the hard way. Meanwhile, um, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken responded Tuesday to criticism by the United Nations Human Rights Apparatus of Systematic Racism in the United States by announcing plans to issue a formal standing invitation to dozens of U.N. rights experts, in quotes, to visit and investigate. As the president has repeatedly made clear, great nations such as ours do not hide from our shortcomings. They acknowledge them openly and strive to improve with transparency, he said in a statement. There's a lot I could say about that statement, but he went on to say, In so doing, we not only work to set the standard for national responses to these challenges, we also strengthen our democracy, which is actually a constitutional republic, and give new hope and motivation to human rights defenders across the globe. 
It is in this context that the United States intends to issue a formal standing invitation to all U.N. experts who report and advise on thematic human rights issues, end quote. Well, as a first step, Lincoln said, the administration has invited two of the experts, the social um, rapporteur on commentary, uh, or rather contemporary forms of uh, racism, and the special uh, rapporteur on minority issues to pay an official visit. Now, I'd be very interested to know who precisely these uh, experts are and what kind of a track record uh, they reflect at the U.N. The holder of the former post, Zambian-born UCLA School of Law professor um, Achiume, uh, told U.S. lawmakers in video testimony earlier this year that the U.S. was not exempt from international obligations to eliminate racial discrimination by making reparations for slavery, which the United States has not yet uh, decided upon. The U.N. Human Rights Council in Geneva has uh, established 56 so-called special procedures, a combination of working groups, experts, and special rapporteurs, including 45 with thematic mandates such as contemporary forms of racism, arbitrary detention, or the right to food. It is those thematic mandate holders And Blinken was referring uh, to with his uh, offer of a formal standing invitation. And we don't have time to go into whether or not uh, those who are charged with that work have a track record that proves them worthy of doing so by their own um, practice. But we'll return to that issue on another day. Up next, we've got our final segment. We'll talk about uh, court ruling regarding churches. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals recently ruled en blanc 7 to 3 that churches and religious organizations have the freedom to choose and supervise their religious leaders without government intrusion. Now, it may not seem like a big deal, but it's actually a huge deal. In Demovich versus St. Andrew's, the Apostle Parish, the Seventh Circuit, ruled in favor of a Roman Catholic church in Chicago after a former music director sued the church when he was fired for violating the Catholic doctrine and his employment agreement by entering a same-sex union. Well, the court ruled that the First Amendment protected the church's freedom uh, to hire and fire the music director under the ministerial exception and that the court had no business adjudicating claims regarding a hostile environment. Now, I want to just emphasize how narrow this is. It doesn't apply, for example, to a Christian school and a teacher necessarily. It's a very narrow decision, but at least it does grant the church in the ministerial um, realm the freedom to um, hire and fire according to the dictates of the particular religious organization. Well, the court's opinion stated, because a minister lies at the heart of a religious organization's work and workplace, Deciding whether discrimination pervaded his employment impermissibly requires intrusion into a religious thicket. The First Amendment outlaws such intrusion. Rather, A religious organization should not be forced to choose between proffering a religious justification or risking legal liability. In these sensitive areas, the state may no more require a minimum basis in doctrinal reasoning than it may supervise doctrinal content. End quote. Civil authorities have no say over matters of religious governance. This uh, invitation to turn the spiritual into the secular raises the concern of chilling religious-based speech in the religious workplace. Turning to Demovich's allegations, what one minister says in supervision of another 
could constitute stem, uh, stern counsel to some or tread into bigotry to others. How is a court to determine discipline from discrimination or advice from animus? These questions and others like them cannot be answered without infringing upon a religious organization's rights, the court went on to write. Well, St. Andrew the Apostle Parish has been serving a Polish immigrant neighborhood in the city of Chicago for over 120 years. St. Andrew Parish hired Dimovich in 2012 as the church music director and organist. He played a central role in planning and performing the liturgy, choosing the music for masses and other important sacraments, and playing the organ during the services. When he entered into a same-sex relationship, he violated his employment agreement and 2,000-year-old Catholic teaching. That doesn't seem to matter in many cases around the country these days, but Demkovich um, sued the archdiocese after the pastor terminated his employment. Now, a district court dismissed his lawsuit, citing the ministerial exception, yet he filed an amended complaint claiming the church had created a hostile work environment. Well, the district court granted some of his claims, ruling that the church had created a hostile work environment based on his disability status, which included metabolic syndrome. But, of course, it wasn't metabolic syndrome that ended up uh, resulting in his firing. Well, after a three-judge panel against the archdiocese, the uh, the case went to the entire court in a 7-3 to three ruling, en blanc, as they say. The Seventh Circuit reversed the panel's previous ruling and declared that the ministerial exception, a doctrine that protects against government intrusion into the employment relationship between churches and their ministers, protects the entire ministerial relationship. Religion permeates the ministerial workplace in ways it does not in other workplaces. Ministers, by their religious position and responsibilities, produce their employment um, uh, environment. From giving a rabbinic sermon on a Jewish holy day to leading a mosque in a call to prayer, ministers imbue a religious organization with spirituality, the court ruled. Well, Liberty Council founder and chairman Matt Staver, who was involved in the case, uh, said that this court decision upholds First Amendment ministerial exception that prevents the government from interfering with churches and religious organizations with respect to certain employment decisions. Now, certain employment decisions is a very narrow interpretation. We're talking about uh, individuals who are involved directly in the ministry. It doesn't necessarily apply to all employees of a particular church or parish or those who work under the auspices of a particular church or parish. For example, if there's an extension of the church and you're talking about a school teacher, that may not fit under the ministerial exception. But Staver went on to say the Supreme Court also has held that these decisions regarding employment are protected under the ministerial exception in order to safeguard the autonomy of religious organizations. Again, it is a narrow ruling and doesn't include everything that one might um, expect it would include, but that is the uh, that is the case uh, with this uh, very narrow exception that has been carved out. So something to uh, rejoice over that there is still freedom within the uh, the church with regard to ministerial roles, but not necessarily in uh, other roles in the church. Uh, the showdown between those who hold views and practices that fall outside of the uh, doctrinal uh, parameters of a particular denomination or church or mosque or um, has yet to be tested to the full extent, but that is invariably going to be the case at some point in the not too distant future. So 
uh, don't be surprised when the issue comes up because it very likely will. One of the questions that's being speculated about these days is whether or not Kim Jong-un's regime is on the cusp of collapse. Now, lots of people have commented on his appearance. He apparently has lost a lot of weight, um, and that's being attributed to some sort of illness that's unknown. So speculation over internal conditions there and the stability of the regime is even more rampant than usual. It's always sort of been the case. This is the hermit kingdom, after all, and there's lots of guessing going on. But reports of food shortages, again, nothing new, a COVID-19 outbreak and political volatility, which is um, not tolerated there, have fanned much of the speculation. Well, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un's recent extended absence from public view fuel that fire, triggering renewed rumors of health problems. Still, it never pays to sell the regime short. How many times has the uh, decline or collapse of the North Korean regime been predicted, only to be found um, to be wrong? Well, Kim has now reappeared much thinner than before. Might have been deliberate. We don't know. But this has only fueled more speculation. His return to the scene coincided with senior leadership meetings in which he warned of dire food shortages, a dangerous influx of foreign influence, and a grave breach of the country's defenses against the COVID-19 virus. Now, some experts have interpreted the trifecta of failings, as outlined by Kim Jong-un, as potentially leading to regime instability or collapse. Well, Kim acknowledged that the country's food situation is getting tense, going so far as to warn of another arduous march, a reference to the 1990s famine that killed an estimated 1 million North Koreans. Crop shortages, skyrocketing food prices, closure of markets have led to increasingly dire conditions there. Well, the Geneva-based assessment um, capacities project concluded more than 10 million North Koreans are in need of humanitarian assistance. And last month, an unconfirmed report from within North Korea indicated Less than 30% of households are having proper meals. So as you're praying for countries around the world, uh, remember to pray for the people of North Korea. Uh, If the regime were to collapse, it could be a a good thing for the people long term, but they are currently suffering in ways that is not unfamiliar there, uh, but certainly difficult. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're not really sure what we're going to do. In fact, we have been working on a guest that may or may not materialize. We'll have to let you know tomorrow. But on Friday, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news as well as the headlines. And hope you'll join us for that. We'll also share uh, the um, Christian outlook in the second hour of the program. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.